Hello, everyone. This is Noah. And I'm Simon. And welcome to the Resolve Podcast. We're your resource for all things mental health, academic success, and personal growth. Devoted to helping students thrive and build the resilience to succeed in school and in life. Hello everyone, I'm live today with our latest guest, Rebecca Brown. She's a practicing therapist that works with professionals and students who experience trauma, and her specific focus is on equine therapy. So she helps people use horses to deal with their mental health issues. I apologize in advance because some of the recordings might be unclear due to internet difficulties. But without further ado, let's start. Um, so yeah, my name is Rebecca, and uh, I've been a mental health clinician for many, many years. It's hard to believe it's uh, over 35. I spent a lot of my early career, actually, as we're talking students, I'll let you know, I got my undergrad uh, bachelor in social work degree from Western. And then I worked in medical social work and then child protection for many, many years. I was over 20 years working in the field of child protection. So learned a lot about young people and children in particular and trauma. And, uh, and then I branched out about six or seven years ago into just doing private practice, still with a specialty in trauma and trauma as it relates to helping professionals. So anybody that's in the medical field, first responders, military, uh, social workers, foster parents, teachers, anybody who was working with children who've been traumatized, I work with them to help them deal with their vicarious trauma. And it was through that work, then I, then I did my master's degree while I was working at McMaster University in Hamilton. So I'm a grad from there. And I'm also now on faculty. Uh, I, I am in the London and Southern Ontario area. And so I'm on faculty uh, at Western, actually in the Department of Family Medicine. I'm one of the few non-MDs that's in the Department of Family Medicine. But my role there is to work with medical students, nurses, medical residents, family physicians, and helping them work through the trauma that they pick up little bits and pieces from the work that they do. So that really is my specialty. I also do critical incident debriefing and I've done international trauma response. The last one I went to was Paradise, California a few years ago after the massive wildfires that went through and pretty much wiped out the town of Paradise. So I was uh, in the field, boots on the ground, boots on the ground trauma responder there. So the work of trauma is ironically what led me to work with horses because we've discovered that there's quite a connection, a powerful connection between animal assisted therapy and helping humans. And we do know that horses really in particular pick up and read our energy. Horses are, we like to refer to them as living, breathing biofeedback machines. They don't see our exterior. They don't care who we are, uh, what we do for a living, uh, how much money we earn. They don't care about the clothes that we wear, our body image. What they pick up is our internal energy. They can really pick up um, the energy given off from our heartbeat, whether we have positive energy, negative energy, whether that is uh, fear-based, trauma-based, whether there's illness and injury in there, horses are able to read that and then respond accordingly. 
So um, those are my partners uh, in a lot of the work that I do. I, I also work in a medical center and I really say that I have my day job and then I've got my fun job and my fun job is working with horses that can really help people to get unstuck particularly people that have um, done traditional talk therapy. And again, I, I offer that as well too, coming to my office, doing virtual and video counseling. Um, but there's something more experiential about standing next to a horse or horses that we have loose in the arena. It's not riding. You don't have to have any experience with or around horses. Just be open to coming into the session and be prepared to be feel both vulnerable and protected at the same time by these beautiful, beautiful animals. Yeah, that's absolutely fascinating. I remember reading about Clever Hans, a horse that was taken to different carnivals uh, 100 or 200 years back that would do multiplication by plopping its heels. And it turned out the horse couldn't do math, but it could just pick up on subtle emotional cues from its owner. So I think... It's really fascinating that horses can pick up on all this. So what exactly are the horses doing during the therapy sessions? Are they just kind of listening in? Yeah, um, it's, it is one of those things that's sort of really hard to explain just by sitting and talking about it. But basically, I have access to an indoor riding arena. And the days that I'm there, Tuesday and Thursday afternoons, the arena is closed for anybody uh, or for everybody else. And it's, it's a therapy session. And so um, we have the person come in and we'll have typically two horses loose in the arena. So they are not haltered. They have no ropes on them. And this lets them know that they can think and behave like horses in the wild. Even though these are domesticated horses, their acute sense of um, safety is their number one um, safety factor for them. They they go into the fight, flight, or freeze um, throughout the session. And so what they can do is they can model how we can be aware of our safety. They use hearing, um, sound, taste, and senses. And it really does help ground humans in being aware of our own body uh, and emotional regulation. So somatic senses are our sense of uh, sound, sight, taste, touch. And it's interesting that humans live predominantly in our heads and we think and, and we have this ability that is both a blessing and a curse. The problem is once we've experienced trauma, once we um, have anxious feelings, feelings of depression, those can overwhelm us and we can live very much in our heads and, and sort of have a disconnect from what's going on in our bodies. So we use the horses and we look to them to model um, what it's like to be on hyper arousal, be aware of sights and sounds and smells that might trigger them and then bring themselves back to a place of emotional safety. So it's using that parasympathetic, sympathetic nervous system constantly, um, you know, the sense of awareness, but safety at the same time. Do a lot of breath work in the sessions when a person is aware of, um, you know, what, and, and the, the therapy model that we, we closely align with would be cognitive behavioral therapy. So how does a trigger um, start that process of our thoughts, feelings, and behaviors? And we can see that happen in the horses. And then we can look at our own lives and, uh, and, and, and model that so that what we practice in the session 
is very relevant for people to take outside into their own lives and have that sense of when they are triggered or um, set into a hyper arousal state, they can do the, the techniques that we've practiced in the session with the horses. And we use terms like, you know, um, tapping into our own horsepower and our own um, body awareness. And, and so it's, it's a really beautiful and, and, and safe kind of metaphor that, that people can take with them into their own lives. Oh, that sounds uh, really, really fascinating. And now let's just switch gears a little bit. Uh, you mentioned you work with uh, medical students uh, as well. And what's mental health like for a medical student? I understand it's very stressful, especially mm -hmm. when they get into the residency part of things. Absolutely. And especially right now in the middle of COVID. So Absolutely. how are they coping? Well, um, medical students really are no different than any other student. They are in university for, um, you know, for the completion of a degree. The academic um, stress level and, and, and academic load on medical students, though, so much more intense than um, some other faculties um, and disciplines. But basically, these are students that are just there to learn and do their best. But the pressure that we see on medical students um, and medical residents um, can be pretty extreme. So that is a lot of what I do is helping people to find balance, recognizing that yes, academic um, achievement is important. However, it's not the only thing and it's not the most important thing and helping people to start looking at how do they have some balance in their lives between their academic job, which is being a student is your job for those four or eight years that you're in university. And then where do you find some temporary relief of that? Are you able to set it aside and have a few minutes every day to take care of yourself physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually? Um, so bringing in things like exercise uh, is medicine. Having, 50, having a routine of 15 or 20 minutes a day to burn off cortisol and adrenaline that's building up in your system. Doing mindfulness. Um, I'm a very strong believer in guided mindful meditation to be able to clear, not get rid of our thoughts, but just clear away the clutter of the thoughts that are going through our minds and being able to, again, tap into our breath work. So teaching medical students and, and residents the importance of simple techniques that they then should be um, passing on to the patients that they're working with, the ability to tap into our breath and slow our breathing down. We slow our breathing down, we slow our heart rate down, we can bring that thinking prefrontal cortex part of our brain back online and then be able to make the next best decision based on, you know, what are the problems in front of me right now or the obstacles in front of me right now. I actually do kind of a cool thing. My husband actually is a family physician and he has medical students and, and residents uh, do placements with him. And, uh, and when they're, when they're with us for a week or three weeks or a month, um, cause we're up in uh, a fairly rural area uh, of Ontario. So they come up here for a month and they stay and I'll take them for a day and uh, do a session with horses where I'll bring a medical student into, um, into the barn and I'll have a horse in a stall and we'll get them to imagine that that horse in the stall is a patient in an exam room. And you just walk in to that exam room 
how's your body language? How are, what's your nonverbal communication? What's going on inside of you? Because that horse is going to pick up all of that. So instantly doing some emotional regulation and how do we nonverbally communicate with patients to put them at ease? So getting into an exam room with a 1500 pound patient, if you're feeling really anxious or nervous, you're going to translate that to the horse. So that's how I can incorporate some really interesting and fun bedside, um, bedside manner education with, uh, with medical students. And it gets them to feel, it gets them out of their heads because quite often medical students are, they have so much information that they feel they always have to have access to in their heads that they disconnect from the fact that they're human first and they need to establish a relationship with their patients on a human level. And that patient who's in that exam room is likely feeling extremely anxious and vulnerable as they meet this medical student doctor in training for the first time. So bringing everybody's attention down and acknowledging that, saying, you know, it's nice to meet you. How do you do? Whoo, I'm feeling a little bit nervous right now. That's okay. We, we you know, let's just get to know each other and spend two or three minutes just asking some nice, comfortable, general questions, and then start to go into the, the problem areas that that patient brings in. So it, it's, and it's funny because the medical students, then when they do their evaluation around what this rotation was like, they always talk about that experience, having to, you know, treat a horse as a patient and having not having language um, as a tool in their toolbox. So they really do have to get to that place of feeling comfortable with themselves and then helping the patient uh, feel comfortable too. And that's definitely something that translates over to the rest of us. So when you talk about getting outside of our own head, what exactly does that mean? So getting outside of our heads is really just connecting with, um, you know, it's, it's partly some emotional regulation, getting a person to regulate their breathing and have that awareness. It, it can be as quick as taking three to five deep cleansing breaths where you breathe in through your nose, really diaphragm breathing, and then slowly breathe out through your mouth. So even just connecting that breathing in through your nose, hold for a moment or two, and then exhale through your mouth and slowing that down. And, and just that is enough to sometimes connect us back up from our heads to our bodies, recognizing on a scale of one to 10, how anxious do I feel right now? Or how calm do I feel right now in my body? And, and noticing what are some sounds around me? What do I, what, what can I feel and touch around me? Just getting present. Um, we, too, we too often are either thinking and worrying about what's just happened and that self-critical voice of, oh, I could have done that better. Oh, I wish I'd said that. Or we're racing ahead to already starting to have answers lined up for what the person is asking a question. So it's about really tapping into this present moment and being present means physically being present. How, what is my own body language? Can I feel the back of my chair right now? Or am I so tense that I'm leaning forward and, and almost just so in my head that I'm not even aware of, of what my nonverbal communication skills are? 
So listening, um, you know, just maintaining eye contact, all of those are ways of having, you know, active listening skills and getting out of our head entirely and engaging, you know, fully through, um, through our other senses. And why, why isn't that a skill that we learn earlier in life? I know it took me having my own mental health problems before I realized, you know, I need to get help. I need to learn how to get out of my head. I need to learn that, you know, I could just go feed some birds for an hour and that gets me out of my head. And it's extremely, extremely beneficial. But why does it take so long for us to learn? That's a great question, Simon. And I wish that... I wish that, and I'm also happy to see that it is becoming much more mainstream to be teaching this in um, primary school education um, and, and, and then hopefully all the way through, but definitely it's a life skill. I, I think it's a life skill that is so important. And part of it is stigma. Part of it is a sense of um, you know talking about our mental wellness we should be comfortable talking about our overall physical health. I mean, we have physical health and sometimes our physical health can be not very good or poor. And sometimes our physical health can be excellent. We should be able to have language around our mental health, mental health as well too. And being able to say, you know, my mental health right now is, is a little bit on the, on a scale of one to 10, I'm somewhere around a four or five, and I'd rather be at a a six or a seven. What do I need to do to help myself get back there? And your example of going outside, feeding some birds, having an animal at your access all the time. If we, if we have pets, cats and dogs are wonderful at being able to just ground us again, because animals live in the present moment. So if we can see um, and have ourselves be able to pick that energy up from our animals in our life. That's, um, that's an incredibly uh, wonderful gift to have early on. Yeah, and I think the challenge is learning these skills before you wish you had them 10 years ago. Exactly, uh, exactly. Either I'm, I'm working with first responders or military people, you know, the amount of training that goes into physically preparing ourselves for the difficult work that we're doing um, is, you know, hours and months and months of physical training, a lot of time for the and intellectual training for the work that we do. And, and I certainly uh, know that, that most professions spend an incredible amount of time training and preparing and educating people for the work that they do, yet almost zero time spent on how are you going to handle the work that you do? And that's where, you know, people like myself come in and talk about, let's talk about recognizing the impact of the work that you do. So when I talk to students, these are skills that I would like them to be able to have early on and talk about preparedness and mental preparedness and mental first aid and psychological first aid. And how do you recognize when you're starting to be overwhelmed or you're starting to be saturated or when you're starting to notice that the work, and right now, if you're a student, your work is your education. How are you starting to recognize that the education, that the the course load, that the pressure is starting to get to you? And how can you uh, recognize that in your body? How can you recognize that? Is, Is your sleep being impacted? And then what do you need to do to put in place to help um, relieve that pressure um, because of that. 
Yeah, and the, wh what kinds of tips would you give to students on what they can start doing right now to build up this uh, resiliency? Yeah, beautiful. And that's what it is. It, it's the word resilience. Um, it, I used to ask people, you know, what are you doing? If, if I ask you, what do you do for your own self-care? And quite often the response, you know, besides people just rolling their eyes and going self-care, who's got time for self-care? But if I reframe that question and, and, and word it, given the intensity and the pressure that you have in your life, what resilience building activities do you do? So resilience building is a whole lot more palatable to a lot of people. When we talk about what do you, and, and there's a sense of responsibility and importance. Yeah, how do I build my resilience to manage the work that I'm doing? So resilience building has all kinds of different aspects. It's physical self-care, it's exercise as medicine. How do you move your body to burn off? How do you get your heart rate off, heart rate up to burn off the um, heavy cortisol and adrenaline um, that's, that's building up in your system when we do go through that fight, flight, or freeze response when we are activated. So cardiac or, or cardio, um, in, intense cardio, walking, running, yoga, um, exercise, bike, any of those activities that can have that intense release um, of our cardiovascular system. Those would be the, the main strategies is um, to, to, to recognize and to, to deal with um, stress in general, exercise, mindfulness, and nutrition are really the three fundamentals that if we don't fuel ourselves to be healthy, then we're, then we're you know, not going to be operating at our best. Again, it's that mind-body connection, um, the mindfulness. Um, there are so many wonderful guided mindful apps out there now that people can use. And I, you know, certainly can do your own search. Some of them are free and just a 10 minute being able to just clear all that clutter of our thoughts and, and allow that peaceful, calm ability to then help us get into the next challenge of the day. And again, it's, it's talking to people and recognizing that you are not alone everybody struggles with something at some point in their lives. And so being able to find people who are going through similar struggles is vitally important, which is why I'm so glad um, about your organization, um, Simon, that's coming forward and recognizing that students have a unique need when it comes to uh, this may be the first time they've ever spoken to anybody about their mental health issues. So having other students to connect with and therapists who understand what students are going through is so, so important. Yeah, thanks so much for coming on to the podcast and talking with me about all of the wonderful work that you do. And I know you've also got a book. Maybe you can oh, give yes. us a short blurb about it Absolutely. and uh, we can definitely share it in uh, the podcast links and on Instagram. Okay, great. Thanks. So yes, um, so I've written a book uh, just published in January called Shelter from Our Secret Silence and Shame, How Our Stories Can Keep Us Stuck or Set Us Free. I know that's quite a mouthful, but I had a lot to say <laughs> just in the title. And it really is my own story that started when I was 15, 16 years old with a tragedy it's a safe read, so it shouldn't be too triggering to people, but it, it talks about how these life events form us and impact us. And our childhood 
childhood is the foundation upon which we're built. And if there are cracks and damage in our childhood that haven't been healed, those can continue on into our adult life. So I weave in a lot of my own experiences and um, also my own challenges, uh, which involve disordered eating led on to um, some addictive behavior in my adult life. So uh, as a mental health clinician, I'm human as well too, and can struggle with how and, 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 and what do I do um, when I realize that I'm, I'm having my own challenges. And then I weave in a lot of professional um, experience. It's the book that I wish I had uh, when I was starting out in my own career. So I, I wrote it from that point of view. And from, from the feedback that I'm getting from people, it's, a, it's an easy book to read. Uh, it's relatable. And I hope that, that there are students out there, if you have time in your life, to be able to pick that up. And, uh, and you might see parts of yourself in there and feel not so alone. Thank you so much for doing that. And thank you so much for sharing. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. And uh, yeah, and, and certainly if anybody wants to reach out, uh, the equine therapy, obviously uh, horses can't do virtual therapy uh, online, but they can certainly, you know, if you have access to be able to uh, a place, I'm happy to give information about how I was certified in equine therapy through an organization called eGala. And I'm happy to talk to people about that and where you can find an eGala certified equine therapist in your area. And, um, and hopefully that might be something that can augment other therapy that people are getting. I quite often have people come to see me for about six or eight sessions while they're working with another psychotherapist uh, about some heavier stuff. And they can come and work with me and the horses just to do some lighter, positive goal setting and work through some stuff in a fun, playful way. So, um, so hopefully that uh, will be helpful to people. Fantastic. So that's a wrap on that episode. Uh, thanks again for coming on. And of course, a disclaimer. This podcast and all of our mental health learning and educational content is not therapy and is not a replacement for therapy. Please seek professional help if needed. Go to www.resolve2v's.ca to get the support you need. And that's all for now. We hope this was helpful in some small way. If you like our content, please subscribe and give us a five-star review wherever you are listening. Make sure to keep updated with all of our content on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. And of course, come check us out at www.resolve, that's resolve with two Vs, .ca, to learn more about how our services can support your needs. Until next time, take care. Theme song for this podcast is done by the band Mokuse no Maguro in their song Midnight Empty Street. <laughs>